You're listening to the She Lift Project podcast, a show dedicated to helping women achieve higher levels of success in the workplace. No matter where you are in your career, we want to help you grow. Now here's your host, Cynthia Kirkpatrick, a CPA, CFP, and Senior Financial Advisor at Mineta Group. Hello and welcome to another episode of the She Lift Project podcast. I'm Cynthia Kirkpatrick, and we're happy to have you with us today. Really excited for Claire Flowers to be joining us. She's an owner of the brand by the same name, Claire Flowers. And as all of that, uh, she's helping women really create their own brand and their look. Whether you're a professional woman or not, you can get her handbags, apparel, like what I have on today, shoes, anything and everything to look, uh, to not look like everybody else out there. So you have your, your shop, also wholesale business and online. And I know you travel uh, mm-hmm. because I know there's a lot of different uh, areas that you go to that are selling your apparel. Mm-hmm. So thank you for being with us today. Yeah, thanks for having me. When thinking about women to have on, I thought you know women struggle with their identity, believing in themselves, confidence, and what story they're trying to tell. So who better than to bring on somebody who you help all the women with that, but also your story of when we talked about this, your path to where you're at today, but helping women brand themselves and differentiate themselves in a positive way. And then how you got to this point of owning your own business and all these different lines and various things. So Mm -hmm. I knew you would be key to having on. So what did I miss in trying to describe Claire Flowers and you, anything to add on what you're currently doing? Um, I I think you nailed it. So although I started in shoes, um, which looking back, shoes is probably the hardest thing to cut your teeth on, just given size. And, you know, there's a lot of nuances with shoes that don't exist in, let's say, scarves, which fit everyone. Handbags fit everyone. Um, Apparel's tricky, too, but um, shoes are special in and of itself. So looking back, um, the, a lot of the challenges I faced may have not been the same challenges had I started in scarves or wraps or handbags, per se. So um, I think that the evolution of my company has been key, um, and COVID had a lot to do with this. So I was doing closed-toed pumps, and it's really hard to do a lot of volume when you're when you're so specific in what you're offering. So with COVID, um, I found that I have to make tennis shoes, I have to make flip-flops, I have to make handbags. Um, so sizing isn't an issue. Going to the office and looking professional every day isn't isn't what people are buying at this time. So it forced me to sort of change directions and open myself to offering more things. And so since that's happened, my company's really grown. So COVID is actually, you know, although those 18, 24 months, whatever, were horrible in terms of revenue at the time, it's put my company on a trajectory that it wouldn't have been on before. So um, I'm one of the lucky ones in terms of COVID and what it did for my business, if I'm looking long term. And then since COVID, um, which forced me to go into a new store location too. So my lease happened to be up March 2020. And so I, I was like, well, this is great because now I'm not tied in this lease. I can take a breath, figure out what I'm going to do through COVID, not have that expense. So then when 
um, things got a little bit better and people were going out and shopping again, I found a new location. Um, and so I am subleasing from a company called Bespoke Apparel, and they have done men's custom apparel for decades. They started in the 80s, um, well-versed, great factory connections, just amazing expertise know what they're doing. So by being in their space, I found that they didn't really um, cater to women so much. Um, they, they're they willing to do custom women's apparel, but they didn't have the client base that I had. So we partnered in that. And now I do a lot of the women's custom and they do the men's. And it's a perfect fit because our clientele is kind of married to each other, dating one another so they can come in and shop together. Um, one-stop shop for men and women in terms of what you can buy and then who can shop there. So it's really been um, an, another amazing blessing sort of thing that came out of COVID is the women's custom. So my business is now growing. Um, it's taken a lot of the seasonality out of my business because closed-toed pumps don't sell you know, that well in June and July, especially if you're in the Midwest. So um, it's just it's been amazing, and now I'm hitting a, a new growth spurt. And I think this may not be out yet, so maybe I shouldn't bring this up, but you had mentioned potentially even men's shoes at some point down the road. So it seems like you're just continuing mm-hmm. to add and venture, take risks almost, but venture into new right. areas. So I did I did start men's shoes with a company out of Spain. Um, I was unsure about one of the, devi- the design elements, which was um, a pink stitch, um, a top stitch. So it's highly visible up at the top of like a men's, it's kind of like a driving moccasin slash boat shoe. It's kind of a hybrid thing. And so I ordered a very small batch of these, but they sold out and the guys had no problem with the pink stitch, which was kind of my fear in ordering, you know, a huge lot, huge inventory and trying to sell it. So now that I've kind of tested that design element, um, I think it's a go. It's just a matter of like now finding the time because I also have women's custom and handbags. And and then, as you said, I travel a ton doing trunk shows. And so it's a go. What's fascinating to me, though, is your background, at least when we spoke one time, I think you had been in IT Mm -hmm. or software, Mm -hmm. and you don't have a fashion degree. No. So what is your background, and how did you get to, well, not becoming Claire Flowers, Mm because you are, but having the line out there and Mm -hmm. who you are today? Mm -hmm. So I started in supply chain and logistics, and I spent maybe five or six years there. And then I moved into IT. Maybe that was another four or five years. Um, And with both jobs, I worked in a sales capacity. So I found that I was traveling every week, every other week. And in sales, I don't know if it's still this way, but back then you had to wear a full suit, um, typically dark suit, light shirt, and black or brown pumps. So I really just needed some steady Eddie pumps that I could wear every day and they could keep up with my busy lifestyle, travel um, through airports and taxis and trains and whatever I was doing. Um, And I found that they were either extremely uncomfortable and well-made and um, then on the flip side, they were really cute and um, uncomfortable and cute and then matronly and and comfortable and well-made. So anyway, it was a trade-off, and I'm sure you all know what that is. So I'd find that I'd go to a city, and I'd have my black pumps on, and I'd get stuck in a grate, 
pull my heel out. Now there's no leather on it, but I'm headed into a meeting. What do I do? So I go to my meeting. Then I run through a Walgreens, black electrical tape, wrap up my heel, carry on with my day. The next day, I'm like, this looks terrible. Run through like whatever I can find, like a Marshalls and Macy's, like whatever's in between appointments. Switch out shoes. Oh my God, those kill my feet. So it's another day. And I was like, I am spending way too much time worrying about my shoes. I don't spend that much time with my handbag. You know, I don't spend that much time with my pants falling apart. Like this is the only thing that's always, you know, falling apart or being painful. So I thought, okay, long time ago, I dated this guy and he used to have custom suits made in Thailand and he could design them. He, um, he said they were great quality. He would go there, have all this stuff made, and then it was a lot more economical than maybe having it made here. So I thought, what if I did that with pumps? Because I didn't think that there was a domestic manufacturer that could do it. So I found a factory in Brazil that would kind of invent a pump with me. So I wanted this plate on the back to reduce the wear from floor mats, stairs, etc., like the back of you know where your heel is. So I said, I need a plate that's ornamental and doesn't look bad, but it's also functional and protects that. And then I want my heels to be wider at the base. So I still get this stiletto-like look, which is like feminine and, you know, it fits with your pants that are off the rack or whatever for your suits. And then I want the heel cap to be made of something, I don't know what, to where it doesn't wear off and you're not walking on that little pin, which is super embarrassing when you're on a lobby floor going to your meeting and you have that click, click, click. Um, and then I need them to be comfortable wider in the toe box. I had this list of things. So I just I, have to stop you for a second because I'm like, oh my gosh, I've been there. I've been there. Yeah. I've been there. It's That's brilliant. Right. So a lot of times when I say this is why the shoe has this attribute, a woman will finish my sentence and she'll say, oh, because of this problem? Because And so we've all experienced it. Um, so I found this factory who would kind of invent this shoe with me. The problem is they don't want to they don't want to go through all of this hassle with this new person developing molds and different parts of shoes and lasts if you're going to be one and done. So they want to know that you've got some longevity. Do you have money behind you? Like how are you, how are we going to make sure that we're not producing your shoes instead of someone else that's going to be more long term? So I had to convince this factory that I was a big deal shoe designer, and that's a whole other story how I got that done. But anyway, so I found this factory to invent these shoes with me, and there was some a lot, some IP along with it too. So it, simultaneously, I'm like meeting with attorneys and um, seeing what I could get patented or trademarked or whatever. So then this factory in Brazil said, okay, we'll make these, but you have to make at least 100 pairs. But I wasn't sure if this was going to be a full-blown business or did I only want 10 pairs for myself? What was this going to look like? Is this an expensive hobby or is this going to be a, a side company in addition to selling software, which is what I enjoyed doing and what I did? So I ordered all 100. Um, I had a party. I sold a lot of them, kept my 10, 10 pairs. And then Throughout the next couple uh, weeks and months, I sold the rest, and then I thought this is something I want to do. I still don't know if it's going to be a company or, or like a side business hobby. So then when I went to look for investors, um, every single one of them said, there's no way I'll give you a dime unless you quit your real job. So that kind of forced me into the direction of, 
okay, well, maybe this is going to be a company. And then once you start taking money, then the pressure is on. It's not just me potentially losing my money, my job, my house. It's, you know, it, it would impact other people as well. So that's when it got serious and I, I had a full-blown company and it was off to the races. Okay, you, you glossed right over. <laughs> I had to convince them. <laughs> You got to tell me more about that the story. factory? How, yes. How did okay. you convince them? You So, so you, you can't really just look up like shoe factory in China, shoe factory in Brazil. I mean, I tried that. And first of all, a lot of their websites are in Chinese, Portuguese, whatever their native tongue is. So you, I couldn't even read it. Um, so then I thought, okay, how am I going to get in touch with these factories? And then if I do, how am I going to convince them that I have, you know, the money, the backing, the expertise, the things I need to make them want to work with me. So a little backstory, a lot of people graduate from the Fashion Institute or um, whatever fashion college they attend, and their dream is to start some sort of line, be it apparel, handbag, shoes. And so if every single one of them goes and calls a factory overseas, they, you know, they'd get a lot of people that they'd have to vet that don't really know what they're doing that maybe haven't had a business class, etc. So I thought I'm not going to be able to just call these factories and get them to give me a tour and work with me and send me prototypes, etc. So I went on LinkedIn and I just started looking at people that own shoe companies. And I was like, maybe one of them will tell me who they use or tell me, you know, show me the ropes. So I found a guy in Chicago. I can't remember his name anymore. Um, and he's, he had had maybe 10 different shoe brands throughout his career. I think he was in his fifties. And I said, I'd like to meet with you. And he, um, he said, okay, well, I do some consulting on the side. So yeah, come to Chicago. So I drove to Chicago, met with him at in the hotel lobby. Um, went through his like consultancy agreement, paid him, which it was fair looking back, but at the time it was a lot of money. It was my own money. I was self-funded. So paid him um, to put me in touch with a lot of different shoe factories. So we started in Portugal. I went there. I had to tell my employer I was taking nine days off work to go to Portugal for fun. Um, but really I was <laughs> interviewing shoe factories all day. So I had a translator, I was alone. Um, every day we got up at six or seven, visited five or six factories, and then ate dinner, went to bed, did it again. So several days of that, um, and they were all speaking Portuguese, and then my translator would tell me what they were saying and so on. The problem was every factory that I went to see, they said, well, pick a heel that's on this wall, or pick a heel cap we offer brown and black, or pick um, we don't do logo plates on the back of shoes. So basically it was like a catalog of shoe parts. And I said, well, no, this is going to be something special because it has to be comfortable and durable and do all these things that typical shoes don't do. So if I'm picking shoe parts out of a catalog, it's going to be the same old shoe. So I left Portugal totally defeated. And I was like, I can't just go to 20 countries and spend nine days in each, you know, the expense associated with that. I don't have enough vacation time. So I was like, now what? Um, so called the guy back in port in uh, Chicago. And I said, you know, none of those are going to work for me. Do you have any other, any factories in mind? And he said, okay, try this, try this guy in Brazil. So talk to this guy in Brazil. Um, his name's Samir and he's 
still my factory guy today, but I talked to Samir and he spoke perfect English. He speaks five or six languages. He's just, he's an amazing guy. Um, so was able to speak with him through Skype. And I said, look, this is the challenge I'm running into. I just can't go there and spend all this time with you. Here's what I'm looking for. We're just going to use a lot of money on FedEx and we're just going to pay to, I'm going to ship you what I have in mind. Um, I will have it 3d printed in terms of like, um, what it looks like. So I had to find a CAD guy who did, um, he did the fuel nozzle pumps for BP and Chevron and whatever. So I asked him to make a CAD file for a heel shape, which he had never done before. So that was fun. Um, then I had, then, so he did the CAD file. Then I had, um, 3d printing was just a new thing. So I had to find someone in St. Louis and this was like, when 3D printers were like 10 grand. And so had to pay for this heel to be 3D printed, sending it to Brazil. So I'm sending, I'm having parts made here, sending it there. We're going back and forth just with FedEx, which in hindsight, that was a lot cheaper than, you know, going to Portugal for nine days. So could have started there, but didn't know, you know, you don't know. So, <laughs> so anyway, um, he sent me my first shoe prototype and it was like 90% of the way there. And I was like, this is this is the factory for sure. So um, another couple weeks and we had nailed it. He had like the perfect shoe, what I had envisioned, and I was floored. So that's kind of how I found the factory. And then that's still the factory I use today. And I remember you telling me one time that you like fashion and what you do, but that your business degree potentially is more valuable with what you're doing mm -hmm. than if you had had specific fashion courses or mm -hmm. fashion degree. Right. So for instance, when I worked in supply chain and logistics, while I was in sales, part of my job, um, you know, in the kind of brown bag meetings and learning about the companies to whom I was selling was walking their factory floor and seeing how their supply chain worked. And so I learned a lot about manufacturing and supply chain and a lot of their you know, raw materials or even final goods were coming from overseas. And then they were selling direct to consumer or B2B once, once the goods were here. So I learned a lot in that capacity. Um, and then when I was in IT, I learned a lot too about just like systems and how you need, you know, all of your kind of systems work together. So like an ERP and how does that touch all of the function areas of your business. And so all of these kind of experiences and expertise that I had came into play and I thought, this is huge. If I can hack it as a designer, this can work. But I wasn't really doing like fast fashion or what you see on the runways anyway. So I was making sturdy, steady eddy, black, brown, navy pumps. That's not fast fashion. You know, you don't have to be an amazing designer to make that happen. And, and my customer base wasn't looking for that. They were looking for something they could wear every day and it was going to hold up and et cetera. So it wasn't until later after I got, you know, the basics down, how to sell a black shoe that I went into things that are more like fashion forward, something you might see on the runway. So I didn't start there, but I'm definitely heading in that direction. Now I'll do custom dresses with people out of fabric that is from a fabric house in Italy that costs hundreds of dollars a yard. So I'm doing more of that now, but I definitely didn't start there. 
And when did you take that leap of, I quit my job and now I'm doing this? So I was blessed in that um, when I went to find a, a boutique kind of marketing firm, I wanted them to be in St. Louis. I found a group called Mind Active. And I was still working and I knew that I was about to take money from investors and I was about to have to buy a website and business cards and a logo and all of these things. So I found this group called Mind Active and um, while I was interviewing them, they said, well, what's your background? And I you know, told them my story and um, they gave me a bid for a website that was very high and I had shopped this. This wasn't my only quote, but this was this, this was the boutique marketing firm I wanted to work with for sure. I, I loved the people. I loved their pitch. I loved the look of the website that they had given me. So I knew it was them and I was like, okay, I'm just going to have to spend a lot of money on this. Um, so then maybe a week went by and they called and they said, we have this crazy idea and um, I thought it was related to price. It wasn't. <laughs> they said, um, given your background, we want you to sell for us and then we'll do a trade. So instead of just quitting your full-time job and going from salaried plus commission benefits to zero, you will have um, you know, some income and then we'll trade that for your website. And I don't... I, you know, you're in finance. So when you do something like that, you get more value because you're paying with dollars that are not taxed. Mm -hmm. So by so then I get maybe 25% more bang for my buck because it's a trade. So when I landed at Mind Active, they gave me um, a handful of house accounts to work with. So I could be an account manager for them, upsell them, and then I was free to go get my own clients as well. So I also got to use all of their resources in terms of I had an office, I had a printer, I had internet. So I went there every day. Um, I worked for them, but then if I had a meeting that had to do with shoes and I needed someone to come in, I'd use their conference room. So it was this amazing kind of transition where I got to work with my marketing team every day. I got to work for them. Um, and then I also got to work for myself. And, you know, I mean, it was just the perfect, perfect scenario. So I was very blessed. Um, I would have never come to them with that proposal. It didn't even occur to me that that, you know, was possible. And then eventually, I got too busy in my shoe business. And I had to, you know, leave and go do my own thing. I needed to have a fulfillment company, I needed to be close to them. So I moved over to a company called Diva Imports, which is a huge shoe company here in town in Maryland Heights. They helped me with fulfillment, they helped me, um, you know, get my SK my SKUs with barcodes and all these other things to scale that I needed that I, I kind of had outgrown like Mind Active and the branding piece and now it was like the nuts and bolts the fulfillment piece to tackle how does that all work so i moved on to this other company and they helped me with that and i officed there so i've i've just been really um i don't know resourceful and also blessed to have always found like the right people when i needed them and then once i had that part down i moved on and so um after i was with Deba for maybe two years. I opened my own store because I'm like, okay, I know how the fulfillment works. I know how the marketing works. And Mind Active continued to do my marketing, and Deba continue. I continued to work with them in some capacity too. But it's just nuts how all the right people are always there at the right time. 
it's funny, uh, these podcasts will be released in different orders and things and at different dates, but talking to somebody this morning, she spoke about how she did so many different areas or so many different hats at the various uh, companies she worked at. And that helped her to be mm-hmm. to bring more to the company, learn more, step away from that company, and do more. And it sounds like same for you. Being business and sales and IT and da da da, all these different companies really helped you to. So don't stay in one lane. Try to pick pieces off everywhere right. that you can. Do right. you think that's one of the best things for you as a you know entrepreneur business owner yes so there are times when i get um a quote for freight or um you know whatever it it might be and i'm like okay well it's been years since i do this but that sounds off or no that's or i need a second opinion like there's a lot of like gut checks that are predicated on what i learned back in my career um and i can just say off the top of my head like I don't know the right answer, but I know that's wrong. And so then I know to go down and that path of investigating it and vetting it. So that's happened a lot with suppliers or just, you know, quotes I've gotten or proposals I've gotten or legal contracts, whatever. Um, Yeah, so I'm I'm thankful for the background I have. And I think it's huge. Now, when you were young, did you ever think I'm going to be a designer? This is what I'm going to do? Never, but... um, Looking back, I was always kind of creative, like putting on fashion shows with my Barbies and, you know, when I was little, little. But then when I got to school, I got more kind of academic and did less of that. And I became um, really interested in math and science. So I wanted to be a doctor and I I thought that that was my path. And so kind of came into play, especially in the IT. That's, you know, very like much like numbers and science. But um, now that I'm back in like, not back in design because I'm not counting my Barbie days as like <laughs> design, but um, but now that I'm doing that again, I I'm definitely like this is what I was supposed to be doing. But maybe Barbie does count yeah. because <laughs> let's be honest, as kids, anything is open and available. The world hasn't taught us to mm-hmm. to live by defined roles or mm-hmm. whatnot. And so you came in and you said, okay, shoe companies, I can stop here and say yes, I'll just pick whatever you have available to me. You said no, I'm gonna. Think Think totally outside the box mm-hmm. and do all these different things and make it my own, you know, and to heck with what the industry says I should be doing. Mm-hmm. So I think we count Barbie days. Okay, perfect. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that's, you know, I look back at myself and my kids and I often think, you know, to it would be better as an adult to be more like a kid. Again, mm-hmm. kind of like what you did, not letting any obstacles stop you. Along the way, there were so many things that could have Oh, and for, for a sure. lot of people, mm-hmm. would have stopped them. What do you think helped you get over each and every one of those? Because there were quite a few as you were talking. Yeah, so I never, um, I don't know that I ever said, like, you have to start this shoe company and it has to be as successful as Warby Parker, or Dollar Shave Club, or, you know, there are a lot of these huge success stories, especially like with online business um, at the time that I was starting to. So I, I looked at things more like, what is on my plate today? If I looked at the entire picture, I would have run the other way. So it's, okay, today I need to find an attorney that does this. Today I need to do that. And it wasn't even, I need to find a shoe factory per se. It was like, I need to find um, a factory that will talk to me. So I make these huge 
kind of tasks into little simple things. And I tell myself it's that and it's just much more palatable. And then you can accomplish that, gain confidence and go on to the next thing. So I remember when I was in second grade, uh, I don't know that they do this anymore. It's kind of cruel, but they have different groups and they put you in groups like you're the yellow group, the blue group, the orange group or whatever. And after a while, you can tell that you are in a group based on intelligence. Um, so they had me in the middle group and they were moving me to the higher group. But in the meantime, I had to do the work of both groups. So I was the only kid at the end of the day still doing all my homework and I was in tears because I was doing all the blue group and all the orange group or whatever it was. And I remember um, going home every night and just being silent and depressed and sad. And finally my mom went to school and she talked to my teacher and said, something's wrong with Claire, we can't figure it out, can you give us some insight? And she said, oh, yeah, she has to do all the work of both groups, and I think it's upsetting her. It's a lot for her. But we have to make sure that if she can't do the the group, the higher-level group's work, then she's still caught up with the lower group so that she can still go back. So it was kind of a test, <laughs> like a, a test phase or whatever. Um, and my mom then took me home, and she said, okay, here's what you have to do. She's like, you have to just take these things one thing at a time. Like, okay, I don't have all this work on my desk. I have this one little worksheet. And I'm just going to get this little worksheet done, and then I'm going to move on to the next one. And then that's how you have to think of this. And I don't know that that was subconscious, but I look back on that experience, and that is how I approach everything now. Like, every huge mountain that I have to climb, I'm like, okay, it's just one step at a time. And that's how I, you know, make my list of tasks in a day so I'm not overwhelmed. And that seems to help me, like, through everything I do now. It's just that thing that she taught me then. Wow. that's How long have you realized that? I mean, that's a... I didn't realize it, that I was doing that until years into my shoe company. And I thought, how am I able to... Because I meet with other people who are starting businesses, and they're just overwhelmed. And they... They're like, I don't know how I'm going to do this. It's only me. I have all this stuff to do. Da, da, da. I don't know where to turn. I can't delegate. There's no one here. Um, and I think, how was I able to do that? And then I think it occurred to me that because that's how then I operated since then. I mean, when I had an overwhelming class in college, I thought, okay, just teach myself these two pages. And then the next day, just teach yourself how to do these two pages, you know, of a calculus book or whatever it was. So... Now I approach most things that way, and it just kind of takes a lot of the pressure off. <laughs> I've seen you in many situations, and you're always like cool as a cucumber. Oh, yeah, we'll just do that. I think we'll, you know, talk to such and such and get our shoes with those school colors. I know you do shoes with a lot of uh, MLB mm-hmm. players' wives, and mm-hmm. but always just, okay, let's write that down, and we'll figure out when we get to that. Mm-hmm. So it makes sense now with you telling that story and how you accomplished what you've accomplished so far. Right. What along the way um, were maybe some obstacles and or pivotal moments from mentors that helped you get to who you are and where you're at today? Maybe we take what were the biggest challenges or setbacks? Um, I did get hung up on kind of the design piece for a while. Um because people would introduce me as a shoe designer and I felt, you know, inadequate because other people are going to New York Fashion Week or they're going to 
St. Louis, well, when we had one, St. Louis Fashion Week, Kansas City, and they're getting all these accolades as like a designer. And so when people would call me that, I thought, oh my God, I only make pumps in like four or five colors. Like, please stop. I'm just a business owner. Stop calling me that. So then I felt I have I have to go design. And I, um, I remember um, a woman at Deba, her name's Diane, and I have just immense respect for her. She's amazing. She's their COO. Um, she might be their full-blown owner at this point. I'm not sure. But anyway, um, I was making this Karen pump, and it kept selling out and selling out. And then um, I don't remember how exactly the conversation went, but I said, oh, no, I'm done with that shoe. Now I'm making this one and this one. And, the, and they were all these, like, wild colors and crazy. And she said, why would you hit a home run and then stop? Like, why would you stop making something that keeps selling out, selling out, selling out? And I was like, you're right. Like, my fear of being called a designer and being inadequate is forcing me to make a bad decision in terms of revenue for my company because I'm hung up on that. And who cares? I mean, it's more important to have the revenue to sustain me and be a designer later because this was more at the beginning. Um, so that that has been a challenge, I think, and that's just an internal thing of my own. It's putting putting these expectations on myself that don't really exist. I mean, I don't have to go to New York Fashion Week. That's not my brand. And something that you said there is just, and through what you've said the whole time, is a little bit at a time, a little bit at a time. Mm -hmm. I know what a book that was pivotal for me was James Clear's Atomic Habits, which talks about every day, 1% better. Mm -hmm. So that at the end of the year, it's 365%, mm -hmm. but it's only 1% better. And I heard him recently with Tim Ferriss do a podcast where he talked about uh, if that day, if, if your goal is to work out and you always work out 60 minutes, but for whatever reason, you only have 15 don't do zero, mm -hmm. do 15 and mm -hmm. be okay with that. But that's right. what you got in. At least you did it that day to keep it going. And so I think that's a lot of what you said here is, you know, uh, just a little bit at a time, don't stop, put yourself out there. But it also sounds like that piece of know, maybe know who you are. Right. Don't try to be what you think others, and maybe they do think right. you should be. I spent a lot of time trying to... Um, yeah, to be what I thought other people wanted me to be as a designer. So I was in a showroom in Dallas and a showroom in Atlanta. Um, and these people were coming out with, I mean, you had to, coming out with all new designs four times a year. And I'm like, but my, my customer isn't buying that way. And maybe later, but I definitely was prematurely in those showrooms. I didn't have enough to show. It wasn't even a collection. So then you know you're kind of setting yourself up for failure because you're trying to be something you're not and put yourself in this um in this place where you you shouldn't be yet it's just the timing's not there it's almost knowing some other stories i know about you and your brand building that base being you so that down the road you can you've had the confidence to say okay now i'm i'm doing this but don't jump prematurely right right and in a lot of those instances, I had, um, I knew, like, my intuition was like, this is not right. This is, you're not ready for this. This isn't the time. Um, you shouldn't be here. Not because I wasn't deserving. It's just, it wasn't aligned with what my company was doing. And so, um, it, you know, would have been better 
to expand my base and then try something more fashion forward, which is what I've done now. But I, I kind of took a step back. And again, um, I was in those showrooms up until COVID. So that helped me too. And that intuition, I think sometimes in our gut, we know, especially as women, like mm-hmm. we really know. Mm-hmm. But we've been so used to getting input from everywhere else, TV, magazines, who people telling us who or what we should be doing, mm-hmm. that it can be hard to stay true when if we compare ourselves to others, it looks like maybe we're failing, but we're really not. Mm-hmm. I mean, you were, in order to succeed, you had to put the brakes on, and that was a smart move. Yeah, it was hard to tell people um, who wanted me to sell volume and grow really, really fast that the way to do that oftentimes is fast fashion, or you make things that are um, really low quality and really inexpensive. So we've all seen like Wish and those kind of Facebook websites. Um, but neither one were for me. So I I didn't want to make something just to make something to get to a revenue number and a volume that would make other people impressed. But that is what, um, <laughs> that is always what you'll hear. I mean, everything you read or see or watch is grow, 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 grow. And that's all that matters. Um, but, you know, sometimes if you try to grow too fast, you can sink your entire company because you put too much money behind something you're not ready for. And I, you know, there are a lot of brands that do that. Do you think that's one of your uh, best lessons that you've learned is kind of knowing what you want to deliver and sticking to that? Mm-hmm. Yes, I wish I would have, you know, listened to that intuition six years ago, but I survived. So that's key. <laughs> and now I'm on a, I'm on a great path. I'm happy. That's good. Any other obstacles? Or you mentioned um, that woman that really helped you. Any other people along the way who stepped in and really gave you that good advice? Um, I I work closely with David and Danny um, Corbett. They're a father-daughter team, and they're very patient with me in getting into like the women's custom and how what that looks like. And um, they've been great mentors but more so teammates i mean it's really nice to to have kind of worked in not a vacuum but you know to be really on your own um for several years and then come into a place where not only are they there every day but they're doing something similar where when i was at mind active i mean they weren't doing something that close and then diva had a very different model too they were mostly wholesale where i was mostly direct consumer they had huge accounts and they were well established um like a well-oiled machine they they weren't going through like growing pains or anything not that bespoke is but i feel like at bespoke i've really found like a a group of family like people i can bounce ideas off of and they're just super accessible and they've been awesome so it sounds like, again, you said there were times where you just had the right people come in your lives at the right time. Right. And now you're at the point where having those other minds to balance, having some good partners mm-hmm. is going to help you get beyond where you could be on your own. Exactly. So finding good partners, having good support, and asking for help probably sometimes, getting outside of yourself to ask for help. Oh, yeah. I have no problem with that. Some people do. I, I have no problem with asking for help. What about... You know, I imagine dressing women, mm-hmm. whether it's shoes, clothing, apparel, are there different challenges or things that you see with women's mindsets or issues or concerns or, you know, uh, 
how you come in and help them? Uh, well, I don't know that it's different from men, just in that I don't have experience with this and men. Um, but I, I do think that giving them the opportunity to, to design the garments themselves and the fit and how they want to look definitely even before the garments arrive they have a lot of confidence in it or if you're going into a store and buying off the rack um you know you can leave with nothing um another thing that we do too is once the garment arrives if you want it to fit a little bit different we have an in-house tailor so we can we can get it there and then you know yeah people don't leave with their garments not feeling confident and happy so that's awesome i love seeing it I imagine so this is something that you made that I'm wearing uh, for those who are just listening a blue uh, jacket blazer whatnot custom when it first tried it on it wasn't fitting right mm-hmm. you guys made it right so it's kind of nice at least for me to go somewhere and know that 90 probably un, very unlikely that anybody in the room will have something on right. whether it's the same color the same style anything and for me that's a little bit um it adds a little confidence, whether in, internally, mm-hmm. that I feel like I can show on the outside, even if I'm not aware that I'm I'm displaying something different. Right. Do you see women transform or um, have concerns prior to coming in and working with you? So they're they don't really have this, you know, amazing glow confidence when they leave the store necessarily. I mean, I can sort of feel it, but it's it's. It's not palpable. However, if I run into females sometimes out in like a networking situation and they have my stuff on, I can see it. They're like, look at this. And they open it up, show me the lining. And they're like, don't I look great? And I love it. And I've gotten so many compliments today. And I'll get emails too. I wore this to a trade show. You wouldn't believe the comp- the compliments I got. And I mean, that has to give you confidence to get people to stop you and say how great you look so yeah i mean that's huge yeah the things i have i often get compliments and if people know you they're like oh that must be a claire flowers oh, perfect. Uh, <laughs> yes yeah so it works Good. but i do feel you know and, and maybe that's something women you know we need to work on and be okay with is to spend a little bit more or be a little bit more willing to be different uh that it will internally build that confidence and even just how you stand how you walk into a room all of that's important and i so there's a i feel like a generational shift in how we shop so like what i see younger people doing is like fast fat like h&m five dollar shirts seven dollar shirts and you get 20 of them wear them who cares if they're bad quality just throw it away what I'm seeing with people my age and older, and I don't know if this has always been the case because I haven't been in apparel, they're spending more on quality things. Instead of 15 blazers, they want four that are really well made, that they can get tailored if they gain or lose weight, you know, by me or someone else. Um, so really investment pieces. And, and maybe that's just how people operate as they age. Um, I don't have experience in the custom apparel except for what I'm seeing now. But I do know that when I was, um, you know, in my teens and 20s, we didn't buy $5 shirts 20 at a time and then throw them away. You know, my parents at least took me shopping once a quarter, maybe. I mean, definitely before school shopping was a thing. I don't, I bet they don't even have that anymore just because kids, things are so cheap, you can shop all year, every day, if you want. So 
I, anyway, I hope that it, just for the sake of our environment, that it trends toward the fewer pieces, more quality. And then, you know, we do that thing, too, where we, it's called Fresh Flowers, and we'll rehab your shoes. And I've heard, why would you do that? Don't you want to sell another pair? Like, not really. I mean, I want them to last because that's the whole point of the brand is things that last and it's an investment. It justifies the price. Um, but then also, I mean, again, going back to the environment, I don't want you to just, if you can have another year or two of wear out of your black pumps because we redo them once, we'll do that. So it's free. You know, you can just ship them to us. We'll redo them, send them back. Oh, wow. I didn't, I didn't even know that mm-hmm. was something you offered. Mm-hmm. But I know your shoes, people who have them, they love them. They last forever. And the other thing, as any woman knows with heels, especially, you know, when you take some time to break them in and mm-hmm. when they feel comfortable, that's the last thing you want is the what you talked about, that pin sound mm-hmm. on, which has happened to me, right. or the front end being cuffed because it's pointy and you've hit, you know, right. a step or something too often. So that's kind of nice that it still has that same comfort and you can get it recovered. Mm-hmm. Right. And you know, a cobbler will do it, but it's, you know, $75. And at that point, people are like, well, should I just buy a new pair? Da, da, da. So, um, I mean, we're experts in redoing our shoes, but not necessarily like others. So, yeah, they look, I mean, really good when we're done. One story I love, or I don't know, I just, I think it's amazing, confident. I don't know if gutsy is the right word. You're known for the the bottom of the heel. It's pink. Mm-hmm. And obviously, we learn more about why you shape them the way you do. There was a big company oh, yeah. that started using pink. Mm-hmm. And you, your attorney, you stopped it. Yeah, so I, uh, how did this go? Okay, so I, I hosted at my old store, my pre-COVID store, um, a designer out of France and then um, he left his trunk show, went back to France. And a few days later, he sent me a picture of a shoe with a hot pink heel cap. And he said, what do you think of this? Can you believe it? And I, I was like, oh, really? They're not supposed to be doing that. And I know this brand, and I know that they sell domestically, you know, in the United States. Um, so the middle of COVID, I had to send a cease and desist Um got one cease and desist written by an attorney um, in town. And it, to me, read very weak, like, please stop doing this. We'd appreciate it. And I was like, no, this isn't going to work. So then had another attorney draft another one um, that was much more forceful. And uh, that's the one that we sent. And so I, you know, during COVID paid for two cease and desist letters. And then this large shoe company wrote back and said that they would sell out of their existing inventory, which was only a few pairs and then never do it again. But also, um, you know, kind of your little you suck, who are you to tell us, you know, and then went on to, you know, <laughs> say that I we had no business writing the cease and desist and et cetera, et cetera. So anyway, I've been checking on them since and they haven't done it. So we'll see. But yeah, that was scary. I thought, do I let this go? I mean, then all of the IP dollars that I had spent previously making this mine would be in vain. So I, and then, you know, if you know about an infringement and you don't protect it, then if there's another infringement later on, 
the judge will say, well, this wasn't important to you then when you knew about it, so why should we care now? Anyway, it's much harder to defend if you let it go the first time. So even though it was COVID and there was no revenue, I knew I had to you know, pay this massive expense to get this done. So it sounds like potentially when you found out a little bit of maybe fear or is this going to go anywhere? Should I even do it? It's a big company. Well, they I, even treated you that way when you right. got it back, but you went and did it anyway. Right. So I thought, um, you know, this is money that could, I don't know how long this pandemic's going to last, how long I'm going to have no store, almost no revenue. So do I keep this money that I have to float the business longer or do I defend this intellectual property so I had to make a decision and um, you know luckily the pandemic didn't last forever and um, I had revenue after that but you know in hindsight I'm glad I did it because I wouldn't have wanted to have made it and then thought oh I should have paid for that also (laughs) so right right yeah I, I when you told me that I just thought that was I don't I mean that's amazing. It was your idea, your IP, you should protect it. But that would stop so many people when going up against a big company. Mm-hmm. And you did it anyway, and it worked. So I just after that, I was like, wow, she's really good businesswoman and mad respect Thanks. for that. <laughs> um, so as we get close to winding down, want to circle back to some of the things you said, which you know, I think are, are helpful to anybody either building their business or wanting to be successful in their career. You know, having an idea, maybe being a little bit ridiculous enough to start on that idea, but bite it off a little bit at a time. Don't let yourself get overwhelmed. And through a lot of these stories, I heard you talking about just being different being real, you had to be really creative, whether it was Barbies or the shoes or different things, not letting the obstacles stop you. You, you know, as you one point you said, I could have started with uh, Brazil, but I didn't know any better. Mm -hmm. So continuously learning and shifting, having help, having people come in. I mean, a list of just listen to this podcast, everybody, this is a list of things to do and learn from. And now you are even further than you were before which is, again, shoes, handbags, custom clothing, uh, anything else that I'm, I'm missing as Men's. part of all that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Which, which maybe that's, just, that's enough for right now. <laughs> right. Um, yeah, at, at any point, you know, during the journey, the process, there's going to be something you, where you say, like, I couldn't find a factory. So someone will say, what happened with your shoe company? Oh, I went to Portugal, I couldn't find a factory. Or... Um, why didn't why what what happened to your shoe company? There was a pandemic. What happened to your shoe company? Well, there was another big designer that started doing my thing, and so I just let them have it and thought, you know, I mean, there's always going to be that thing where you can just walk away and throw your hands up. But if it doesn't, you know, totally sink you, it's really just a challenge. It's not, you know, you can always like move past it, um, unless you like Bernie Madoff and go to jail or something. Like you, you know what I'm saying? They're just challenges. They're just hiccups. They're do it all legally. Yeah, just. <laughs> And I love how you just sit here saying that so uh, casually and relaxed, because I'm sure there's going to be a lot of people out there going, oh, I don't know, I don't know. But that's part of what makes you successful. I think believing in yourself all along the way to say, I'm going to make the right decision for myself and not care what others are doing, what they think I should be doing, or what they might be saying about me. Exactly. So um, I just watched 
Brene Brown's, not her original TED Talk, but something else, where she talked about her TED Talk. And she said she was quoting Teddy Roosevelt and saying, um, you know, there are always going to be critics, but if they're not in the arena and they've never done what you've done, you know, who are they to say? They have no idea what, what you're going through, what you're facing. So I've, and I've learned that, but that was a challenge um, in and of itself. Just why haven't you grown this big? Why aren't you like this? Why aren't you national? Like, why why don't you sell on the West Coast? My brand's not well received on the West Coast. I have enough business in the Southeast to sustain me for decades to come. So when you stop trying to be everything to everyone and listen to all the noise, you will do great things, but you have got to stop listening to the critics or you will get nowhere and you will just beat yourself up all day. That's a great way to, I think, round this out. Uh, where do we find you? So we have store, mm-hmm. address, website, and trunk shows. Mm-hmm. List all the places we can find you. Um, so my store is Clayton 8500 Maryland in the ground level of the Barton building. And then online, and then I'm in um, boutiques all over the country, but in and out. So they might like what I have this season and buy three styles, and then the next season they aren't. So um, I'll probably put a list pretty soon on my website as far as stores in different cities. But I also do um, a national event called Wine, Women, and Shoes. And so I have those coming up all over the country, too. I'll put those on my website. So I know I'm doing um, Birmingham. Springfield, I think Sarasota, Cincinnati, Canton, Ohio. So the, there, there'll be a huge list. So if I'm in any of those cities, you'll have the dates. Oh, I'm definitely doing Chicago March 11th. I'll add all that to my website as soon as I get back to the office. There we go. I used to do that, and I, I took a break through COVID, but I'll start doing that again. So ClaireFlowers.com. So mm-hmm. Claire, C-L-A-I-R-E, flowers, as you would spell it, mm-hmm. dot com. Right. Well, thanks for joining us today. And awesome. For sharing I had a great time. Your story. It's not too bad. It's not too bad. And I'm sure there will be things here that people will definitely pick up on and it will help them because I know it has for me. Awesome. Thanks. Thanks. This concludes another episode of the She Lift Project podcast. To hear more episodes of the show, subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And to learn more about our mission of helping women reach higher levels of success, visit sheliftproject.com and sign up to receive the latest news, ebooks, videos, and more.